Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to another episode of Missing Frames. This is the podcast where we watch all the movies we should have seen by this point in our lives. I'm your host, Sean Eastridge. We're hanging out on the Nerd Party Network. It's a whole host of podcasts you can check out devoted to all things entertainment, everything you could possibly want, everything you could desire. We got movies, we got books, we got music. And you know what? We don't actually have, we should get, I'll talk to Tristan. If you're listening, we need a music podcast stat. Let me know. We'll make it happen. But go over to the nerdparty.com. Check it out. You can follow us on Twitter at join nerd party. And also like the, uh, the Facebook page and Instagram. It's just the nerd party. I am very excited today to welcome back to the show, a guest who we've had before. None other than Mr. Brian Bittner of the lessons from the screenplay team. Brian, welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be here again. So I've had members from the Lessons from the Screenplay team on the show before, and when we did the first round, it was uh, me introducing you guys to films that you hadn't seen, and Mm -hmm. we flipped the script this time. We had Trisha Aran, she introduced me to West Side Story, Michael Tucker, he was on, and he introduced me to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and now Brian, it's your turn, which movie are we going to be watching this time? We are going to be watching Hal Ashby's Being There, uh, the 1979 film. And this is one of your all-time favorites, I believe. I'd say it's probably somewhere in the top 20, not top 10. You should be more enthusiastic. Top 20 is a good, that's a good range. But like, it's like maybe around 20, put it that way. Okay. There are a lot of movies. You've seen a lot of movies, so 20 is not bad, all things considered. I want some enthusiasm out of this. All right. Jesus. <laughs> take, take two. Being there by Hal Ashby. Yeah. So I uh, I have never seen this movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. My first exposure to this film, I think, is because I'm a big fan. I was, I was joking about music at the beginning, but let's get some music trivia in here. I'm a big Wilco fan. This mm-hmm. is not news to anybody who knows me. They're one of my favorites. And, uh, of course, their second album, was named being there mm-hmm. which i believe i don't know if they outright said it but i think it was specifically a reference to this film i mean i feel like it has to be i don't think this is something that's i can't think of other pop culture references that would that that could be related to i mean so let's it's just, just say it is it's just a a phrase you know that you could say in english it being but... there is something you can be it's true. Right. You can be many things. You can be there. You can be here. You can be everywhere. But you're probably right that it is uh, a, a reference, a direct reference. So that was all I knew, really. I knew it was like, oh, it's a Wilco album. And then also uh, Hal Ashby in general. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have actually never seen a Hal Ashby film. And and he did this. He did Harold and Maude. Mm-hmm. He did, uh, I think he did the Woody there was a Woody Guthrie movie bound for glory. Yep. But other than, you know, a, a, a friend of mine was really like, Oh, Harold and Maude, you would love that movie. I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of, uh, of his films. So I really, really have a, a limited uh, education in terms of Hal Ashby, in terms of this film. Um, there was a criterion sale recently mm-hmm. where I knew you and I had been talking about doing being there for an episode. So I was like, I might as well snag, this film that's something i do sometimes i'm like i who knows if i'll like it i'll buy it anyway so i, I just want you to know if i don't like it that guilt is 100 on you yeah the pressure's on now <laughs> but when did you first see the film are you a big hal ashby fan or is this just i'm not a big hal ashby fan he's one of those people where i've seen i think i've seen two of his movies and love them and just really want to see more and just haven't gotten around to sitting down and, and watching them gotcha. um, i can remember the first time i saw being there i watched it with a friend in college I think my junior year of college and we both loved it, but I was trying to remember why we watched it, like how that happens. Like, why did we say this is the movie we should watch right now? And so I'm thinking, I know the following things happened and I think they happened in this order. So (laughs) 
which was I saw Dr. Strangelove and sort of started learning about Peter Sellers and how he's this, right. you know, sort of genius actor who can play all these different roles and has been in a, you know, a ton of big things. Um, and then I saw Harold and Maude as a sort of rite of passage. You know, I did my first couple of years of college. I did a ton of like, I have to watch Seven Samurai. I have to watch Harold right. and Maude. I have to watch Butch and Sundance, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And then I watched uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is a, a also a top 20, maybe a top 10, a little higher than being there, I would oh, say. Oh, snap. Yep. And uh, John Cameron Mitchell said that Hal Ashby was his sort of directorial inspiration for the tone of the movie. Wait, have you seen Hedwig? I haven't. Okay. Well, man. Are we right. about to switch? I mean, that's a top 10. Are we switching? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Tomorrow we're recording a Hedwig episode. You watch being there. I'll watch Hedwig and we'll just see if we can find common ground in our right. conversation when we return. But yeah, Hedwig is, you know, this like crazy rock musical about this like very boisterous uh, trans woman. And it's shot like this sort of, 60s drama kind of you know and in this really cool way where it's like it's a movie that could be so flashy and stylized but instead it feels very real every it feels like everything you're feeling is like tangible and that is what Hal Ashby does in his movies and one of the reasons I really like him as a director so all of those things happened and somehow that turned into my friend friend is visiting in college and I'm like let's watch being there so I don't know if it was because it was a high rated movie or because Peter Sellers was in it or because it was Hal Ashby or because it was all of the above. Somehow we put on being there and we watched it. And we loved it. Um, and since then I've seen it at least half a dozen times. Uh, I just showed it to my girlfriend uh, for the first time a few months ago, earlier this year. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's just one of those movies where it's always nice to have one of those movies in your repertoire. That's a little off the beaten path that, yeah. You know, if you're like, my favorite movies are Fight Club and, you know, The Matrix, people are like, cool, I've I've definitely seen those. But sometimes you have a friend who hasn't seen like Scott Pilgrim and you're like, oh, we got to watch it right now. Uh, and I think being there is one of those movies where not everyone loves it. Um, and I know I know Trisha beyond the screenplay uses the word despise when she talks about it. Um, <laughs> but we can get into that when we do part two, because I think because we talked about why and I totally get why, but I have different thoughts on it. But uh, but yeah, it's not for everyone but it is a uh it's a really interesting movie and i love it and uh i'm excited to, to actually talk about it once we watch it i'm very curious about it and also at, you know you mentioned peter sellers and of course i knew he was in this movie and i think honestly i dr strange love of course and that's a movie i haven't seen in years but i love and he's brilliant in it and mm -hmm. for those who haven't seen it first of all you should see it but he plays multiple roles in the film yeah and it's just not only is he's one of those comedic actors who there are like comedy actors where you never expect them or really want them to take dramatic turns. Mm -hmm. Peter Sellers is like one of those who exists in this other worldly plane of actor where it's like, you know him as a comedian, you know mm -hmm. him as like, Oh, he's a brilliant comic actor, but kind of like Chaplin, he sort of transcends that. And, yeah. and while Dr. Strangelove is more overtly comedic in some of the roles he portrays being there strikes me just in what little I know as a little bit more subtle in terms of the sense of humor and particularly his performance. It's almost, it seems understated. Like the comedy is underplayed in a way. And I'm wondering if that's something that's uh, maybe put some people off. And I know that's going to be, we'll probably talk more about that when we come back and watch it. But I wonder just thinking out loud, I wonder if maybe that's why some people it's hard for them to mesh with it or to really connect with it. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very funny movie, but not in the, it's not Pink Panther or the party or something like that, where it's like jokes after jokes, you know? Um, but I feel like we can't talk about the main reason why people don't like it until you've seen it because, um, <laughs> because it's, it's a movie that does a specific thing and, and that's not, I'm not, saying you have to like watch out for this specific thing it's just basically who the main character is is not what you're used to seeing in a movie and i think i think okay. and, and that'll become clear within the first you know five ten minutes so it's not like sure. a, it's not a spoiler or anything like that um but i just think people find it hard to um to gel with that uh in a way that we'll talk about Gotcha. So let me try before we, we take a break to go and watch it. I'm going to try to guess what the plot of this movie is, which is a little unfair because I do 
I do know a little bit about it. I know Peter Sellers is is he's like a he's a servant. He's been I don't know if he grew up in this house, but the, he lives with this wealthy I don't know a, a mogul or a businessman or something. But he's lived there his whole life practically. He's been a, a butler essentially in this kind of very closed off environment. And when the uh, the when the guy dies, the owner of the home dies, uh, Peter Sellers is kind of like, all right, well, sorry, you got to get going. And so it's kind of like he goes out into the world and and is trying to find his place. And somehow he gets involved with high society. Um, and I know if this is more overtly comedic, it would and maybe this is in this. Uh, I feel like uh, maybe maybe a really, really dumb version of this movie would be like. He gets invited to a dinner and it's it it maybe plays out like a scene from Borat where it's like, oh, this guy is so unsophisticated. But I have a feeling this is going to be more of like a little bit more of a social, a more grounded social commentary mm-hmm. than something like that. It's going to be a little again, we talked it's a little understated. It's a little bit more maybe not dramatic, but I think it'll be a more kind of scathing maybe commentary on on social class and things like that and in the meantime peter sellers will just be kind of wandering around sort of out of his element and being comedically brilliant as he always is but that's my guess i don't know where it goes i know like things that i not just from what you've said but i've heard there are things that happen in the movie that will kind of be like oh all right well Okay, so I'm curious to see how I react. I'm curious because Trisha, who I love and is a great friend of mine, uh, she and I tend to be on the same page on a lot of things, but mm-hmm. every so often we'll diverge. So I'm very, I, I already have some feelings as to why she might not be into this. And I'm curious to see if I'm right about that. But all right, I think, I mean, that does it. Unless there's anything else to say, I think, uh, what do you say? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, it was it was cool to hear you say that because basically, I mean, that's sort of like the back of the box kind of explanation of the movie, you know. And I think you, I did read the back of the box before we recorded, so yeah. uh, it's spot on. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, outside of some like minor details, uh, you you basically nailed what the what the first twenty minutes is or something like that, and then and then just as just as you should, you have no idea or, or not no idea, but, but very little idea what comes after that. And, and I it's think... a pretty long, I mean, it's a two hour movie, mm-hmm. I think. So that's a small, small chunk out of what I have to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, and yeah, it's, I think it's, I mean, we can talk more after we watch it, but I think it's a good, it's a good length. It's a, it's a sort of movie that has a, an interesting pace to it in that it's not a fast paced movie, but it never feels I think dull in my mind. You yeah. Know? So I think, okay. yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to hear what you think. That sounds good. So let's go watch being there and we will be back to discuss it. So stay tuned. Now available to own on video cassette. And we're back. Uh, Brian, I, uh, I really, really enjoyed this movie i i it's it's funny because i can totally and i want to talk about it specifically trisha and why i think she didn't (laughs) like it but Uh i can totally see why somebody would i don't know if i mean you used the word and specifically she used the word despised quote unquote Mm -hmm. to describe her feelings towards this movie i don't know that i could necessarily see how somebody would despise this movie but i do see how someone might not like it or might not enjoy it or might be like and eh, no on the flip side i also can understand totally why somebody would be like oh this is one of my favorite movies of all time it's uh i don't know if it's one of my favorites of all time um i was so impressed by it and it's just it's like i want to use the word crazy it's not like wacky things are happening all the mm-hmm. time but the movie is so out there in terms of trying to understand narratively where it's going realizing oh, this is the entire movie. This is kind of just <laughs> circling around this guy the entire time. And then just trying to get on that that wavelength and trying to find the rhythm of the film and just sticking with it. That was such an interesting experience for me. Also, and I'll warn everybody uh, who, for whatever reason, if you're tuning in and you haven't watched it, I don't know why you do that. I'm going to spoil some stuff. I won't spoil specifics right now, but uh, I... I'm so lucky nobody spoiled the ending of this movie for me. Mm, I was wondering if that that last shot is one of those like 
Planet of the Apes last shot where you've seen it 10 times before you see the movie. So I'm glad that that I'm glad it wasn't. I was going to ask whether once it got to that point, if you're like, oh, OK, I know this this shot somehow miraculously. Yeah, I have never I, I miraculously almost, you say. Yeah, <laughs> my brain kind of uh, had this moment of recognition where I, maybe I'd seen it somewhere out there in pop culture, but I never knew it was this movie. I never knew I had no idea that was coming. So that mm. really was amazing. But yeah, yeah I awesome. uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, I guess I'm, I want to, I want to real quick. I want to guess what, what Trisha didn't like about it. Okay. So Trisha is, uh, we've had extensive conversations about this and she and I kind of differ. This is one of the things we differ on in terms of storytelling, which is she is all about theme. And for of her, you start with, you start with the theme. Like what is your movie about? And from there, you develop the story, you develop the characters. I'm kind of the opposite where I'm like, you kind of write the story, you figure it out as you go. And then at the end of it, the theme becomes clear. This is something Stephen King talks about a lot, where if you start with theme, sometimes you can come across as a little preachy. But as somebody who loves theme and she like is full on into that, first of all, this movie, what's the theme? It's questionable. Is it uh, television is ruining the nation? I don't know if that's the theme of the film. No, I, I think the theme is actually really strong in this movie, but we'll get into that then. But I also think the other thing that maybe throws her off and probably throws a lot of people off, uh, threw me off too, is uh, Chance is a protagonist with no awareness of his surroundings and therefore no agency over what is happening mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah, it breaks the rule. It breaks like the cardinal rule of storytelling, or of movies at least, which is your protagonist should be sympathetic and should be driving the story. And it doesn't do that. It very purposefully doesn't do that. And I think that's a fascinating choice, but I think I had a a friend who she showed the movie to a guy she was dating and he was just like, I, the protagonist wasn't sympathetic. I did. Why would I care about him? You know? And it was like, well, you're not like, that's kind of the point, you know, like it's, but like, again, it's why I totally understand it can be a frustrating movie to watch because you're like, I don't know if I'm on board with this guy and things are just happening to him. He's not actually making them happen. And that can be frustrating for people. Right. It's like uh, Aaron Sorkin describes it as when you're writing great storytelling is goals and obstacles. So it's like your character has a goal. What's the obstacle that prevents him? And the better the obstacle or the more insurmountable, the obstacle, the more exciting the film will be. And in this film, there's no goal. The character has no goals. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's, he's a gardener. He wants to garden and he wants to watch television. Right. And uh, <laughs> obstacles aren't any obstacles. Everyone, he kind of falls into situations where everyone kind of gives him exactly what he wants at every point. And it's, it's so, I can't imagine how much of a nightmare it was to, to write this thing, to try to make that work because somehow Hal Ashby pulls it off and a lot of it has to do with Peter Sellers because Mm -hmm. he's so good. (laughs) I mean, he's amazing. And he's seriously, you can just watch him. He, and you can watch him watch television. That's literally what he does. And it's, there's something about the innocence with which he portrays this character that just makes him utterly watchable. So I was never bored by it, even though it is like, it's more thoughtful and nothing it is slower in terms of its pacing, Mm -hmm. but I was always kind of engaged in that. And he had a lot to do with that, but I just was thinking about it from a screenwriting perspective of like, how do you even craft scenes for a film where it is something like this, where it's very lackadaisical, where nothing really, there's no momentum. Yeah. It's just kind of things happening. So I was trying to look at it from that perspective. And then I kind of gave up. First of all, it's, it's a book first. Um, right. So Jersey Kaczynski wrote the book, uh, which I which I've read, um, and then he also wrote the, book? the screenplay for the movie. The book is great. It's one of those. Um, I feel like Fight Club, A High Fidelity, Being There, they're all books where when I've seen the movie ten times and then read the book, it really just feels like I'm reading an extended cut of the movie. Like it feels mm-hmm. like the the soul of the thing is there, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, like you know, the book, the uh, the guy who approaches him at the party and says, "Where have you been all my life?" The book takes that to basically you know if you think of that last scene with eve in the bedroom the book takes it pretty much there oh <laughs> like, my god yeah <laughs> so i'm like yeah we didn't need that we didn't need two of those in the movie but uh but like you know so the book is a little bit more um willing to go places but yeah it, f- it feels roughly like the same story 
so Kaczynski, he's credited as the screenwriter, but apparently it was Robert Jones's script that Ashby used. And for some reason, the Writers Guild would not give him credit. Mm, and according to Ashby, yeah, I, and I don't, I know Ashby, uh, for as long as he lived, he, which I guess he, he died not long after this. And it, there's also just a really fascinating he- thing here with Hal Ashby's career and Peter Sellers' career, where mm-hmm. this movie is like definitively because Peter Sellers died within the next year, and then Hal Ashby's career kind of just went in a tailspin and never recovered after right. being there. So very interesting how those were mirrored. But I know a- Ashby really was upset as he should have been. I guess that Robert Jones was never credited, uh, and Kaczynski. They were saying his screenplay was a little bit too just like. It was on the nose and it was a little bit too slavish to the material. Mm. But I, uh, I, I I found that really, really interesting. I can't imagine even Robert Jones, the screenwriter who was not credited. He was kind of like, yeah, yeah. The fact that I wasn't credited on this, like really kind of ruined my career. And it's just like what so many different talents in this film kind of like this movie was sort of a, a pivotal moment in their careers where it just kind of shifted their lives in really strange and unexpected ways but i was going to ask you just having read the book because it sounds like it is very similar and it Mm. is in terms of like the scenarios and the way it plays out uh it does sound like it essentially is kind of the same pretty similar i mean i don't it's been a few years since i've read it but i remember feeling like like it just felt it felt like what you want to get out of a book after you've seen the movie which is this feels like the same story, even if some details are changed here and there, you know, like I don't care when I see adaptation of something, I'm like, I don't care if the character has green eyes instead of brown eyes or whatever, but it's like, is the, is the soul of the thing still here, you know? And it very much felt like I was reading, I was reading being there. So I'm like, I'm getting into this movie. So first of all, the opening of it, I I think the moment where I I was kind of like, okay, I think I'm going to enjoy this is when, uh, when chance after, his uh the owner of the home he's been living in and he's mm-hmm. been living there it's very it's just this kind of mysterious sort of like he's been living there his whole life he was raised by this woman who also lived there and fed him meals and he would just garden and watch tv and that was it but i think the moment i knew where i was like okay i think this i'm i'm with this film is he goes in to see the man who's dead in his bed he kind of puts his hand on his forehead and he sits on the bed and then he turns on the television and mm-hmm. starts watching it. And I was like, okay, I think I know what this movie is kind of going for in terms of the uh, the quirk element. But right. uh, I found it, again, very, very fascinating the way Sellers plays Chance, which mm-hmm. is, I can't think of many other cases where I've seen this, but he is very, very much a blank slate. And he's not so he's almost completely unaware of anything that's going on to the point where he can't have normal conversations. He's a lot of his, his stock response to people is, uh, I understand. And yes. it's just a very interesting, like to watch him interact with people, to have that be a stock response and to have everyone just find the thing they're looking for somehow in the way he responds to them. I, I found that so fascinating and it's so brilliantly done. And I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about this, but I find it funny that uh, the movie I watched with Michael, when we did the curious case of Benjamin Button, we mm-hmm. talk a lot of, or we talked a lot in that episode about the passive protagonist and how do you make a mm. film work with a protagonist who's essentially kind of things are happening to them, but they're not necessarily driving the story. And we kind of realize we're like, well, it's kind of, it turns into the supporting cast and the surrounding cast. The main character becomes a reflection for those people in a way. And he reveals something about them to them. But being there is almost like a, it's like a preemptive parody of movies like Forrest Gump or Benjamin Button, where there's no grand life lesson. It's just like egotistical people kind of patting themselves on the back for thinking they're brilliant or recognizing this brilliance that they perceive that isn't really there. Right. But I was wondering what you think about that. Well, yeah, to me, that's what I think is brilliant about the movie. You know, talking to, um, to Trisha, like she said, well, yeah, the movie bothered me because it's just one joke over and over again. Like he, he doesn't get it. He's an idiot. And that's the joke. And you know, she's not wrong in terms of that's who the protagonist is. Like you said, like that's, you know, you're like, Oh, that is the whole movie. That is what, what's going on here. But I think to me, the joke isn't that he doesn't get it. The joke is that everyone else doesn't get it. 
yeah. the joke is that, you know, so I think that like, it's this brilliant satire on confirmation bias, which is how people, you know, how people only see what they already believe and how appropriate that is, is that when you're talking about high society, politics, love, then you get a pretty blatant statement on religion with the last shot, you know, and it's all sort of, um, it, it's people, you know, look at the political climate right now. It's like everybody just can read the same quote and take, they're only going to think how it affects them and what they, uh, what they get from it, how it already, how that quote says exactly what I believe. Well, actually it says what I believe. Well, you know, we're just going right. to take whatever we want out of it. And, and then of course, the commentary on, you know, I love Louise's line. All you got to be is white in America to get whatever you want. Um, yes. There's, there's the moment where I think the, the great, a great moment sort of stating the theme moment is when he tells the cop that the tree is sick and he better, you know, needs some help right away. And the cop looks him up and down. Like basically he looks at him and says, well, he's, he's white, he's well-dressed. He doesn't say any of this, but you could just tell this is what's yeah. going on in his head. Like he's white, he's well-dressed. He's sort of older and dignified. I better take him seriously. I better call in this sick tree, you know? Um, and then of course, so I think, I think the theme of the movie is, is that people um, are, people do themselves a disservice when they, instead of like looking for the reality of a thing, they just take, you know, th their own belief out of it. And of course, all of that is reflected in chance himself, who is obsessed with television. So he is looking at this sort of two-dimensional thing, like a Plato's cave kind of allegory. And he's like, this is how I process the world. This is how I believe in things. Anything only matters if I, if it's sort of, I can connect it to television. And that's, I think, what other people do with chance is they're like, chance is just sort of their blank slate where they can uh, make him be whatever he wants. I uh, did a, um, I, I love the, the Stranger by Camus. Uh, which I don't know if you've read that, but it has a similar mm -hmm. protagonist um, in the sense that he's kind of a blank slate. And there was a lecture that a um, someone in academia, I can't remember who it was, gave about it. And he said that he taught the stranger over multiple decades. And he said he found it was fascinating that like in the 80s, kids looked at this guy and were like, he's a layabout. He doesn't really do enough and everything. But in the 90s, they were like, oh, he's really cool because he kind of, you know, is so stoic about things. And it's sort of like the character is this blank slate. And then you can place whatever you want on him, whether that's a good or bad thing. And that's what people in the movie do, which we can get into more later. But I think to me, that's what I love about the movie. It's not that it's this one joke about him. It's that it's this continual joke that evolves and takes all these different turns about everybody else right yeah. like and you get to like that final scene with eve in the bedroom you get to the guys discussing chance is going to be president like the next president you know like all that kind of stuff and and i just think it's like you're it really takes it that far um and i just think it's like a beautiful statement on on people and how people perceive things Th that last line that that um that the president says uh, is life is a state of mind. The last oh. thing he says as, you know, as um, uh, chance is out on the water. And I just think it's sort yes. of like, that's a really, that was that like, I, I again, I, I am so lucky that I didn't know that was coming because mm. when it happened, like, again, I was enjoying this movie and I was like, okay, I, I, I get it. I think I understand. And that moment threw me for a loop so significantly that it went from me being like, I enjoy this to being like, Oh damn! This is like now my 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 brain is starting to explode. Uh -huh. And then of course the final line, which life is a state of mind. And yeah. I, I was just like, this is too brilliant. And then they followed it up with a blooper reel, which I was just like, what is happening? Like I don't even right. Know That's a weird one. First of all, it's weird just because it doesn't feel like that kind of movie, you know. No. But also, Peter Sellers hated that Ashby put it in because yeah. Sellers is such a like I, I'm in this character, the real me doesn't exist, you know, like we have to, and, and like that totally broke the illusion of there being a chance and, you know, separate from Peter Sellers. But yeah. The ending is interesting. It was, it's not in the book and it's not in the script. So it was a last minute, you know, I don't know how last minute, obviously they had to build something under the water, but it was a, a very late addition to the movie, but I just feel like yeah. it gives, it's one of those things that just gives the movie that little extra oomph at the end that makes it feel like, you know transcendent for, almost right I exactly mean, like literally whether, transcendent it may have just been a little fun idea or something like that but it really makes you recontextualize the whole movie when you see that moment you're like oh is it, this like what were we talking about this whole time you know it does but it speaks to the theme i think of what you were talking about with the film and something i think 
is also apparent with the movie. So also, yes, you were right. Uh, I think Ashby on the day was like, well, what if he just walks on water? And they uh-huh. filmed it. And the original ending was, I think, uh, uh, Eve is looking for him and, you know, he's fixing up the tree and he goes, ah, I've been looking everywhere for you. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, that's the end of the book, too. Yeah, I, I know that Shirley MacLaine and uh, I think others were very put off by the ending that Ashby decided on because they mm. were similar to the blooper reel, which is so jarring. They felt that final scene, that final image was so jarring and so at odds with what came before but I don't know necessarily that it is. And here's why I think that to speak to your point about what the theme of this movie is, I think there's also this thing running through the film of there's this whole idea, particularly with like intellectual criticism or people who are like, really like, yes, I get film. I understand film. There's this idea of like, you have to get something or you have to analyze it, or you have to one up the other person you're talking to. Like you have to like, have this intellectual superiority, but you never want to be perceived as somebody who doesn't get the thing. Sure. And that's something that happens through the film. We see Chance, who is just constantly, all these people around him, like, yes, he's so brilliant, and da-da-da. And it's almost like it feeds their egos in a way. Like, it feeds their, like, ah, I am so in touch with my emotions or, you know, intellectually evolved that i am fully in tune with this brilliant beautiful man who knows so much more than any of us and it's like nobody is self-aware enough or willing to admit that maybe there's like a spade is a spade kind of thing Mm -hmm. like it's just they are so not willing to see the thing for what it is and the brilliant thing about the ending of the movie is ashby opened up the doors to the critical community and to film snobs to be like, Oh, what do you think this ending is about? Right. And in a way it's almost the epitome of chances character amongst these high upstanding high society people who are all like, Oh yes, I understand. I completely get it. So it's like, you watch the ending of this film. It's completely baffling. It kind of is like, what does it mean? Does it mean anything? I almost feel like Ashby is sort of saying like, well, yeah, does it, does it mean anything? What do you think it means? Does it mean anything? Or is it just, he's walking on water. And I think in a way that makes the scene kind of the epitome of the film and exactly in tune with what the message, if you could call it a message of the film is. Sure. I, I think another scene that's the epitome of the film in exactly the same way is the meeting with the president. Um, which we're <laughs> yeah, obsessed so o- over lessons from the screenplay. We're obsessed with midpoints. And this is the midpoint scene of this movie where a lot of times we say midpoint is when like a new truth dawns on the protagonist, uh, which you don't really have that in being there because no truth ever <laughs> dawns on the protagonist. But another way that I like to look at mid- midpoints is that the first half of the movie builds up to the midpoint and the second half of the movie falls away from the midpoint you know mm-hmm. if you uh, look at Freytag's pyramid it's like it's the climax is in the middle of the story and not at the end um right and he uses the word climax in a slightly different way than we do but um but if you look at that like that's exactly what being there is everything is building up to that moment of like what if we put all these circumstances together what's the craziest thing that could happen he meets the president and then he talks to the president and then he talks about gardening, you know, but then of course Ben says, I think what our shrewd young friend is trying to say here is that, you know, and the branches of economy and all this kind of stuff. Um, And, uh, and then it's like, Oh, and then the president quotes him. So of course the second half of the movie is now that this midpoint moment has happened, what, uh, what comes as a result of it. Um, And, uh, but I think that's another, that's the scene I always think of when I think of like the, the best example in the movie of chance saying something completely innocuous or tame and then someone interpreting it to mean whatever they want it to mean. Um, So I, but it's exactly what you said about the ending. It's this sort of like, I'm going to place something here and then you are going, whether it's you, the other character in the movie, or whether it's you, the viewer are going to take that thing and then turn it into whatever you want it to be, which is inevitably what we, what we all do with art. And also to what you're, you were saying, the other thing I thought was so brilliant, and I real again, once you get to the end of the movie, this feels even more brilliant. And I don't know if it was just a piece of graffiti that was on the building that they happened to want to capture or if they put it there themselves. But the uh, America ain't shit because the white man has a God complex. Oh, wow. 
having that be on the wall as he walks past it and then having the ending of the movie be him walking on water. Uh-huh. And to your point, like there's that great line of like, yeah, all you have to be is white in America to succeed. And the movie is commenting on that as well. And like you said, our current political climate, it's difficult not to see those parallels in there. It's it's difficult not to see like, oh, just by the sheer fact of who you know and who you've gotten in with, you can kind of work your way up to the top while being completely clueless as to what's happening in right. your life. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny too, because this movie is so interesting with how it handles race. And and some of it is like, I'm thinking about like, how does it play in 2020? And also how did it play in 1979? Which is you have these very obvious, I'll, I'll say jokes, like they're funny, but they're funny in a sort of like, ugh, kind of way, which yeah. is, you know, Chance sees this older black woman on the street and says, can you give me lunch? Because you know because that's you know, what he's that used to he's used to louise yeah um and then and then he meets the kids who threaten him and then later he sees the the doctor the black doctor and he says oh do you know Raphael? he gave me a message you know um and of course the doctor's like sit down <laughs> like, i don't want to listen to your bullshit um but uh but i think that's that sort of like it's a it's a sort of it's like a sitcom joke from the seventies that wouldn't be a sitcom joke today, you know, but yeah. at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, the character's an idiot. We're showing you the character's an idiot. Like, of course he would think, you know, he would relate these two things cause he doesn't know any better, but then you have the like super racist Cheech and Chong video, uh, uh, basketball <laughs> Jones that like plays right. for like two minutes straight. And th- that video actually premiered before a, previous Hal Ashby movie so it might have just been him like giving like giving this credit and just being like let's throw your your thing in here but right. it's just interesting to have this like very on the nose uh you know I, like <laughs> it's Cheech and Chong but like still it just feels like really really icky to watch today where you're like that is yeah. that is not fun I also but, I I think I think that the ickiness of that was balanced out by the sheer shock of uh finding a connection between this film and space jam yep and in specific the space jam soundtrack which has a song called basketball Jones, it's that song by which Chris Rock and is Barry that White. song which yeah. i had no idea so i was so busy like being like oh there's a like a kevin bacon game you can play between being there and space jam because that's just the way my brain works and then also uh, george I, harrison so was... played guitar on that song so you've got a little beatles connection <laughs> oh carol king played so they, piano on the song. so you can always look on the bright side no right. but that that is completely i don't it it does feel like it's I don't know because of the fact that Ashby seems very aware of the commentary he's making about like kind of like you can be just a a white man literally picked off the street because if you're wearing nice clothes and you look a certain way, you will be swept up into this world because you fit the mold of what is considered quote unquote successful Mm -hmm. in America. Right. And and I think it's interesting, you know, with how much we're, we're talking about how important representation is these days. It's, it's sort of a, you know, it could be looked at as a anti-representation satire of like, I mean, a satire about people who are against representation, which is if this is how you portray people of a certain race or gender on TV, this is what people are going to think of them. Like, let's have a character in a movie who literally learns everything from television. What's he going to think of the guy in the old black and white movie who, you know, raises his hat? Y'all like that kind of thing. Like if that's all you show, then it's not surprising that the character is then going to go and basically be racist because how, how's he going to know any better? He, all he, all he gets is from TV, which is obviously why we live in a time where we are trying to get a better representation of people of all sorts to be like, Hey, they're not just this one little token thing in your movie, you know, mm. but I don't know that he handled it in the best way possible in the As way sensitively that probably is right. Like <laughs> maybe so it's like I would in these days. Yeah. Instead of watching the movie and being like, Oh, that's really smart and really, and really poignant. I'm like, kind of like, I, I hope this is what he was going for. Question mark, you know, like, <laughs> but that's how I choose to that's read That's kind of how I felt about the, uh, the romance too. Not as, not as extreme. It's not as uh-huh. uh, off putting as far as uh, the race issues. This film sorted semi tackles, but there's just a really interesting, take on romance where Shirley MacLaine's character Eve is kind of not that dissimilar from chance in terms of she is sort of at the mercy of this benefactor Mm. who she's lived with. It's her husband. She's kind of 
well-to-do. She is living in this mansion, this wonderful lifestyle. And when he dies, there's kind of more of a security for her because she's kind of like, well, it's going to be okay. And then also uh, Ben Rand is kind of preparing Chance to take on his legacy to the extent that he's even like, yeah, you know, I don't mind if you sleep with my wife. I mean, you can be my, you're basically my replacement, uh, which is just, the movie is so ridiculous and so funny in the way that this guy just immediately is like i like this guy i'm going to give him access to pretty much every facet of my life and start to train him to be my successor but uh shirley mclean i thought it was so funny i was i was reading about it and apparently shirley mclean who's a brilliant actress and i i've really the only thing i can think of that i've seen her in other than this is richard linklater's bernie Oh yeah, I don't know if you've seen, but it's so funny. Jack Black is in it, and uh, Shirley MacLaine is so so good. But she is kind of time out. So you're saying you haven't seen the apartment? No, I haven't. All right, that's that's a missing frame. You're you're doing with somebody. I would love to watch that because uh, I've been seeing a lot. Insane. Missing frames has been my introduction to Billy Wilder, so I would love to. Nice. I would love to check that out. But um, she is such an old school actor that she. she basically was kind of like, all right, well, Hal, what do you want me to do in this? Like, what is my motivation? And he would purposefully leave her out on a limb because he kind of. That's the name of a Shirley to... McLean book. Is it? That was completely intentional. <laughs> I just, I just want to say that was just... 100%. And it's all 100%. about how she believes in, you know, all these like ethereal things. So, I mean, the fact that you just like plugged her book without knowing it. I'm, I just I think you I'm know. channeling the spirit of Shirley McLean right yeah. now. But uh, he purposefully left her out of the loop because he wanted to evoke this performance of this woman who's kind of like sort of just like ah, i don't really uh, right, she, right and she's sort of like you know she doesn't know what's going on she kind of just sort of like oh she's trying to seduce chance and then when he doesn't respond to her she's like oh thank you i couldn't control myself uh-huh. and, but she's also like very needy in a way where she sort of seeks that approval and the film just it builds to the scene where she is she is pleasuring herself because he tells her, I like to I watch. Like, what do you like? I like to watch, which is just yes, it's on paper goody. sounds like such a stupid idea, but in the context of the film is so brilliant and funny. I, I couldn't believe, first of all, I mean, I know this is the era where PG movies weren't really PG movies, but mm. there was a part of me that was like, this is a PG rated movie. Really? Uh, that features a scene where Shirley MacLaine, pleasures herself while peter sellers does yoga (laughs) that scene was so brilliant but i just the romance in the film how did you feel about that how do you feel about the relationship between eve and chance and the way it kind of speaks to the themes of the movie where eve is really projecting what she wants onto chance and her romantic longings but also just this twisted aspect of chance also just being completely oblivious to all of all of it yeah, you know, it's funny because I think on paper, it's certainly unfortunate that there's one female character in this movie and she is sort of beholden to one person and then just sort of like kind of attaching to this new person. Um, but it's Shirley MacLaine and she's so awesome that I don't even think about it. I just think like, what an amazing character, what an amazing performance. Like, I just, I love watching her. Just saw The Apartment for the first time actually recently. And she she's insanely good in that too, in a way where like a lot of Billy Wilder where you're just like, I didn't know people could be this good that long ago in film. Like, uh, you know, you sort of like see older movies where people are like a little, their acting is more stilted or it's a little bit more theatrical or whatever. And she's so realistic in, in all of her performances, but also not like realistic doesn't have to be mean understated either. Like Mm -hmm. she can go crazy or she can be like, just like say something with just a little, a little look or whatever. And I just think, in my mind, her character can be whatever it is just to be able to get this performance out of her because it's just insanely good. It's like one of my favorite performances. Both of them. Well, I are... also I, I think I think it is great. And and I don't mean to criticize it in that way, because I think what's brilliant about it about it is there is like a facet of a kind of person who is so desperate for attention or so desperate for like that need to be loved or feel that sense of like meaning. They derive a sense of meaning from that. Right that I think she portrays so brilliantly and Ashby's direction or lack thereof really emphasizes it because she does come across as 
extremely desperate in a way that's that's very very funny right yeah and i think i think that her function in the movie is the same function as every other character which is to take a certain branch for lack of a better word of of this theme and sort of play with it so for hers it's love for the president it's politics uh you know and, and for some of the other characters it's it's like little little nuances of this stuff it's just conversation you know the the russian uh ambassador you know oh, there's something very uh in about you um it's sort of it's sort of showing <laughs> yes all these... we are we are closer <laughs> yes our knees are practically touching <laughs> um so it's just sort of different characters you know playing with a different idea but all in this same in in the same greater idea of like they're going to project onto him whatever they want to project onto and I think that what makes Eve's character more three-dimensional too is the relationship with between her and Ben, which I think is a really beautiful relationship. The fact that like, yeah, she's a sort of younger wife to this older, you know, dying kind of politician, but like they genuinely love each other. They they genuinely yeah. like are happy and make each other laugh. And they're they're very respectful of each other where he's like, Hey, I want I want you to be safe when I go. Um, and, and she's like, I appreciate that, but also like, I love you, you know, and that kind of thing. And the fact that they're sort of willing, forget about who chance actually is, forget about the idea of like, we invited this person to our home and like, we both really care for him and we're willing to, um, we're willing to talk about this sort of like trans romantic transition, you know, as, as I'm on my way out and stuff, there is something really beautiful to that, that keeps it from just feeling, there's a lot to this movie that could feel very one note but instead i think the movie does a really good job of making it feel broader and more three-dimensional and i think that's one of them yeah one of the brilliant things the film does is it doesn't feel like you said that she's almost doing it out of love for ben where he's like i want you to be taken care of i see that you care about chance and i see that you're attracted to him and i think that's a wonderful thing and she's kind of like are you sure i don't i don't know and the fact that, like, I agree completely. I think that adds a layer of, like, sweetness to it. So you don't feel like she's just, I don't know, like she's just there for, for the money or she's just right, there for the exactly. power of it. She, is, she does come across as sweet and sincere. All these people do, except for the fact that it's just within this political circle, <laughs> you're dealing with all these people who are in charge of things. So, again, the commentary on, oh, look at all these high-level people, these people who are technically in control and in leadership positions who have no clue what's going on in the world does that sound a little bit like what's happening right mm -hmm. now absolutely uh but what i is... see on tv is what i know <laughs> that's true yeah but there's like to contrast with what's happening in the real world um it's a little bit more these people are a little bit more innocently inept at life in general it's it's it, right. the movie's not overtly saying like these are bad people or these are stupid people. It's like all these people are well-intentioned, sure. but they're all just kind of clueless. Like they're right. all striving for greater meaning to the point where you, somebody like chance can come in and throw the, like, ah, oh, yes, yes, of course. Why didn't we think of it that way? The the garden and the seasons and right. the branches. Like yeah, no, totally. And I think that it's interesting to track sort of, I think about like SNL sketches, like Saturday Night Live bits where it's almost always you have one crazy character in a normal world. Um, you know, a movie like that would be something like Elf, uh, right? Where it's like he, right. all these characters sort of, how do I deal with this crazy person? Or you have one normal character in a crazy world, which like Idiocracy would be an example of that, uh, where it's like, oh, wait, everybody else is crazy, but I'm the sort of, I'm the audience's, you know, way mm -hmm. into this story. Or something you don't get a lot in movies, but you get in like SNL sketches, everybody's crazy. And it's our job as the audience to be the normal one. Like everybody's doing <laughs> bizarre things. And, but we get that it's bizarre because we know what real life is, you know? Right. Um, I think it's hard to do just one of those things for two hours. And I think that like, what I like about being there is, you know, as you, as you talked about with the different characters, they all have their own little takes on things and so, and they're all like well-meaning people for the most part but i also like that you have that you cut to louise in that scene where she's like i raised that boy she, he's an idiot and like you know but he's yeah. like now he's on tv but you also have thomas the guy who sees him early at the house and then robert who's ben's doctor who robert 
you know, it's, it's a fascinating take on like perspectives where one character just sees him from a certain angle and they're like, oh, he's genius. And this thing he said means this very poetic thing. And then Robert always happens to see him when he's at his stupidest, you know, where he like <laughs> calls for a car and then doesn't go in or he's just like yes. walking down the hall and like trying to sidestep or, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And <laughs> so I like that it, that helps keep the movie from just feeling like it is this one note joke because you do have these characters who are like, wait a minute. And then Robert has that moment at the end where he says, you you really are just a gardener, aren't you? And he says, yeah, you know, but I also love by that point in the movie, Chance has gone on this kind of emotional journey for as small as it is. The, the movie is bookended by two, you know, his two sort of caretakers dying. And with the first one, like you said, he sits on the bed and turns on the TV like, oh, OK, he's gone. But like, it's a nice day out. Yeah, so but I think no that, recognition. of it, Right. Yeah. And then at the end, like, you know, and again, this is how do you play this character if you're Peter Sellers? Like he's still chance, but he is tearing up. He's emotional. He says he loves Eve uh, and he's very sad that Ben is gone. And you actually see this transition, you know, so I think that, again, mm. for a movie that is sort of just this one, this one idea played for two hours you get so much nuance in it you get so many dimensions uh coming out of it um and uh, i just think that's a that's a huge part why it works so well whereas it could be so easy to make this make a a very slapstick sitcom version of this movie the movie almost forces you to pay attention to things like that because they're so it's so subtle and it's so kind of like on this certain mm -hmm. it's got this certain vibe to it that when big things like that happen like that emotional beat at the end you're really drawn to it because you're like oh my gosh this is very unlike what i've been seeing in this film i also love i mean that scene was was very moving i also love that after it's like you really are just a gardener and then he says that whole thing about how he loves eve and then he leaves and that robert says i understand which is uh -huh. how <laughs> chance has responded to everything throughout the entire movie ah, right i understand but I, I thought, again, so brilliant. That was really the one-two punch of that line and then the ending of the film, the final shot of the yeah. film, which, no joke, I think this is, regardless of whether you love or hate it, I feel like you almost just have to appreciate that ending as, like, maybe one of the best endings of yeah. any film. I mean, it really really blew me away but are there any are there any standout sequences for you like standout moments in the film that you just always go to like you're always like yes this is amazing this really cements the film's reputation for me i think the one you talked about you know the moment where you said okay i'm on board with this film i thought what you were going to say was when he leaves the house that is my probably my favorite sequence <laughs> and i wanted to, i wanted to ask you like what was your process of kind of getting what the music was doing in that moment <laughs> well i thought uh i i'd seen i seen that clip funnily okay. enough i had i hadn't been spoiled on the ending but i had seen the clip of him wandering around and uh, i'm very hungry can you get me something to eat um i'd seen that so i knew i'd kind of expected it but then when you really when you hear that piece of music you're thinking about one film which is 2001 a space of Odyssey. course so the fact that you if you're putting it up against that film and what that music means to that film just like the cosmic something beyond our human comprehension well, discovery discovering the new this exactly, new world yeah exactly so you have him going out into this new plane of existence that you know he's never seen before and i grew up in the dc area so it was just such a treat and of course the iconic shot of him walking down the middle of the the mm -hmm. road as the cars go past him is just so such a striking image but th that entire sequence is just like it, it's completely on its own in terms of the film. Like it's just sort of like he just wanders around, explores things, interacts with people and is just generally confused, but such so effective. And of course the choice of music is just so comedically brilliant. Right. But yeah. That was, that's probably my favorite sequence, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. That was the moment where my friend and I watched it for the first time. And, you know, he walks out of the house and there's this sort of hip hop beat, you know, and he's like, okay, and then suddenly you realize it's the 2001 music, which I know was not written for 2001, but like you get that sequence there and we just started cracking up. We're like, this is, yeah. I'm like, is this the funniest music cue I've ever heard? <laughs> like you don't get a lot right. of funny music cues <laughs> unless it's like someone falls and it's like, mur, 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 you know, or whatever. Right. But, um, and so I think, I think that was probably my moment where I was like, 
okay, I'm on board with this movie. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah I'm in good hands. Yeah, because you kind of don't get a feel for like I I thought that beat was funny where he picks up the remote after seeing his benefactor dead on the bed. Uh, I, it just was so funny, but I agree with you. The film is kind of like all right, where are we going with this? What's mm-hmm. going on? I know he's got to get kicked out of this house. And that's where the film sort of picks up a new energy when the music comes in. But we've talked a lot about what works for the film and why you love it and why we both enjoyed it. Are there any things that you would say like, yeah, I see this doesn't work as well for me. Or uh, I know we talked a little bit about some of the social commentary that's like, is it there? Is it not there? Could it have been a little stronger? But are there any moments for you where you, in particular with Trisha's criticisms of it, do you like say, ah, yeah, yeah, I see exactly that doesn't work as well, or this isn't as strong? Not really. Um, I, I mean, I think that I think the race stuff we talked about is the only thing that makes me go like, I wish this was a little more clear what was being said here because it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but everything else, I mean, it's also a movie I've seen, you know, probably a few times yeah eight nine times something like that so it's hard to say like what doesn't work because i feel like every time i watch it i'm like whenever the next scene happens like oh good it's this scene i never feel like i have to sit through scene b to get to scene c or anything like that like i I really for for it being you know an older film than the films i grew up with and for being kind of slow paced i just find it like insanely watchable it's just a movie i could put on and you know it's not a movie i want to put on for fun every day of the week or anything like that but it's like whenever an opportunity presents itself to watch it i will i will watch it i will say this first viewing my vibe was i could understand the the kind of the one note response Mm -hmm. like somebody being like oh it's a one note premise it's a one joke premise i can see that like i did kind of by the end of it i was sort of like I think there were these variations of the things that we've already discussed, like the ending that kind of threw me for a loop where I was like, oh, maybe I read this completely the wrong way. But there was this general vibe of, oh, this is going to be the entire movie. It's Mm going to be him interacting with different people and different circumstances and them just being completely oblivious to the fact that he's completely oblivious. So I do kind of get that. I understand that. But there's almost a part of me now, like with the ending of the film, talking with you about it and also doing a little bit more research and realizing that this, this was Peter Sellers. I think it was his last big role. And it was also his last role. That wasn't ha- like the, the legend of Fu Manchu or whatever. Is, yes, is exactly. Exactly. And then it was just knowing that this was also kind of the beginning of the end for how Ashby, like it right. was kind of the cutoff point and just at its place in, it, I was reading an essay that comes with the criterion collection, Blu-ray of this film where they talk about how Hal Ashby's career was so just married to the decade of the seventies. Like he started off at the beginning and like really kind of pushed through. And then the second, like, you know, being there came out in 1979. Mm -hmm. And then once he got into the eighties, his career kind of just went off the rails and he never fully recovered from it. All those things to me, I can tell already that even as I'm speaking about it, my affection is growing and growing and that this is a film that I will almost its reputation will grow in my mind looking back on the viewing yeah. and with subsequent viewings. The first viewing I like it was, I can completely empathize with Trisha or anybody else who was just like, I don't get it. He doesn't do anything there. What, what's the point? I can get that. And I can, I, there were points in the film where I was kind of like, okay, I get it. But uh, I can tell this is something that the more I think about it and the more I, I reminisce about certain moments that I'm going to want to go back and revisit it. And I feel like it could go higher in my rankings. than I think yeah, I would I, initially, believe. I definitely think it's a movie again for as many times as I've seen it. Like I still feel like I'm getting new things out of it and appreciating new things out of it, you know? So I feel like I'm, I'm excited. I want you to tell me in a year and a half when you're like, you know what, I'm going to watch being there again. And like, I want you to, I want to see what your experience is watching it then. Cause I feel sure. like it is one of those movies that, um, I think there there are a lot of movies where when one thing about it is sort of bigger than the others, in in this case, having the protagonist be who he is and, and sort of like a, an unfamiliar protagonist for people who've seen, you know, hundreds of movies, um, then that's what you remember, you know, like, like, mm-hmm. oh, I saw that movie. I just remember this thing i just remember there was a guy dodging bullets i just remember like his daughter got taken you know i just remember like whatever like there, <laughs> there are which like, movie that was yeah like, um there are, i just remember there were dinosaurs like there are very uh there are very 
movies with a very big thing in them, that's the thing you remember. Um, and some movies you go back and watch it a second or third time. And that's all there is. It's just, we, we had, yeah. we had dinosaurs in our Jurassic world movie and that's kind of all there was to it, you know, but you take a movie like Jurassic park or, you know, um, the matrix or something like that. And you watch it a second, third, fourth time. And you're going, Oh, okay. There, I didn't appreciate yeah. this is going on and that they were actually setting up this to do this thing and that this can kind of be read a certain way, but also can be read a different way. And I'm not sure. And I think that being there is one of those movies that it feels like there, there's something sort of poetic to it almost where once you get below the beneath the surface, then you start to appreciate that there's a lot of a lot of little things going on with these different scenes that might all feel like the same scene over and over again the first time you watch it. And I don't think it's that at all. Totally. Yeah. I think it's one of those movies where you can tell as you're watching it, because with any film and you know, you bring up Jurassic park where it's like, there is something that holds your attention. Like it's like, Oh, it's exciting. It's fun. There's special effects. Da, da, da. You know, there's the flashy stuff to keep your attention, but we're trained with movies to like expect something. Right. So when you watch a film like being there and you're kind of like, where's it going? Where's it going? Where's it going? And you're, you, you build yourself up. You can almost, that can kind of work against you too, because mm -hmm. then when the movie starts to like either go in a completely different direction, or it doesn't appeal to the instincts you have as a film watcher or a film lover, like you're like, Oh, well, I know that this is supposed to happen at this point and it's not really happening. I don't know where we're going. It kind of, sometimes you need to take in the hole before and once you do that, you've watched it and you understand what it was going for. It's like, okay, now I can go back and appreciate it. Or now yeah. that I don't have the, the need of like trying to figure it out or the stress of trying to figure it out, I can now go into it knowing full well what it is, what it's trying to say and appreciate the layers and start to look a little bit deeper and digging beyond the surface right. and seeing what's really there. Yeah, we talk a lot about No Country for Old Men on the podcast, which is like, oh, it's a Western. There's a good guy and a bad guy. I know what has to happen at the end. Oh, that didn't happen. I'm mad. This movie wasn't good. Bad writing. you know. And then you go, wait a minute. Why was it written that way? Um, and a movie I was just thinking about the other day is Lost in Translation, which I've only seen once. And I just remember my experience watching it was like, I enjoy this. I like this movie. This is good. Wait, those are the credits that was it. That was the whole movie. Like <laughs> seriously. And then I was like, so angry. I was like, this movie was terrible. Like it didn't go anywhere, but I, I feel like it's a movie I can't speak poorly of because I haven't given it a second chance. I haven't gone back in knowing that I'm not going to get a sort of capital E ending. You're going to get this, you know, this, this subtle, quiet kind of fizzling out at the end almost. Um, and I want to go back and watch the movie again knowing that you know and i think that that uh, there are a lot of movies where you can't just watch it once you have to go back and now that you know what the movie is again surface level now go back in and watch it again and then see what you get out of it do you think this entire episode is basically us trying to pitch to trisha that she needs to watch being there again no because she won't <laughs> <laughs> well now that we've got that out of the way is there anything else we want to discuss that we haven't uh i don't you think, think so we've pretty I, much gotten it yeah i think i've covered it I think we're good to go. So let's go ahead. We'll do uh, final ratings. Let me know what you think of this. This is one of your favorite movies. So if you have another final rating you would prefer, we'll go with that. But I was thinking we could do TV remotes. Yep. There you go. TV remotes seems right. So yeah. on a scale of one to five TV remotes with one being the lowest, five being the highest, what do you think? How many would you give it? It's got to be at least four and a half for me. I, I don't know if I could say five, but I'd be tempted to say five. Uh, I mean, it is a movie where... I, I just appreciate it more every time I see it, you know, and, and I just, and it, and it just continues to be watchable for me. Um, I guess because of the things that don't work perfectly, I'll, I'll keep it from being a five, but I'll, I'll go with the four and a half. I will go ahead and say, I'll say three and a half for, again, all the reasons we've discussed, mm -hmm. but it's a film that I, I hold in higher regard than I think that would, that rating would suggest. Like yeah. it's, it's one that I know I'm going to come back to that I know is going to be on my mind. And again, I, I would not dispute anybody who's like, Oh, this is a classic. I'd be, I'd be like, yes, that's 100% accurate. Where does it fall into all my personal preferences? Not really, but kind of like we discussed, there are things that I feel thinking about it and talking about it with you and reflecting on the film over the past couple of days since I watched it. It's stuck with me. There are images in the film that have stuck with me. Certain characters have stuck with me. And 
I think this is one of the greatest endings I've ever seen mm-hmm. in a film, as I've already stated. So I'm very excited to at some point revisit it and would wholeheartedly recommend it to anybody. But this has been great. Brian, thank you so much for introducing me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And you've got a, you've got a few things going on. I mean, you've, you've got a pretty busy schedule, so I do appreciate it. But why don't you tell the good people at home all about this busy schedule and uh, what you got on the docket coming up? Uh, we'll do. Yeah. We, so our, our YouTube film analysis channel is Lessons from the Screenplay. And our podcast is Beyond the Screenplay, where we get to be a little bit more casual about things than the very academic, educational uh, tone of Lessons from the Screenplay. And we are, if you're listening the day this episode comes out, we are about to launch on Tuesday, November 17th, Story Mode, which is a brand new channel on YouTube brought to you by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, in which we take the same level of analysis that Lessons from the Screenplay takes to film and television, but we apply it to video games. And we've actually been lucky enough to interview the narrative team behind several games, The Witcher 3, Outer Wilds, The Outer Worlds. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and more to come, and actually get their take on why they made certain choices and give kind of lessons if you're trying to make a video game and just help you appreciate games more if you're just a casual gamer. I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. And where can people find you on the uh, the social medias? Uh, I'm at Brian Bittner on Twitter and all the other places pretty much. And I'm at Yay Shondorman on Twitter, at Shondorman on Instagram. And I would love to hear from people out there. What other Hal Ashby movies should I be watching? Harold and Maude, obviously. Is there anything else? Last de- is it, It's the last detail, which also speaking of Richard Linklater, Linklater directed Last Flag Flying, which is kind of a... Isn't that sort of a sequel to mm, The Last I Detail? I think it might be. Somebody fact check me on that. Either way, I want to know. Wikipedia says yes. Wikipedia says yes. We're in. So I want to know which one I should watch next. And uh, I want to hear all the different opinions about being there as well and where it stands in terms of the annals of comedy and cinema. But thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.